Welcome to episode 70 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. I mean, I saw you after the New Year, but Happy New Year on our podcast to you. I know this is podcast salutations. We're back yes. at it for 2018. We are. I'm ready to go. The 70th episode to start. How do you feel about that? We should call it like the Septuisode. Nice. Nice. Get my little a little Greek, a little uh, Old Testament Bible nerd, and then episode. Just this podcast really does have something for everybody. Yes. This is the LXX episode. Wow, your use of Roman numerals was pretty fast right there. Those are the only Roman numerals that I know above, like, when you get past using X's and I's and V's. <laughs> I, I get lost. I just know it because that's the Septuagint, and I know that that's the LXX. Oh, that's, that's a how good you call. abbreviate it. So. Yeah, that's a good call. We're nearly there. I love now, it. But I did just do in my head that that must mean that L is 50 and X right. is 10 each, so 50, 10. Okay. I just taught myself how to do numbers greater than 10 now. Yeah, this is really a podcast that enlightens all kinds of information. Yes. We've done our diligence now of language teaching for the evening. Yeah, on to bigger things. So speaking of which, <laughs> you got something that you're affirming and denying this week? I do. I'm going to start out with my denial. We'll toss it on its head a little bit because we were pre-gaming it a little bit and my affirmation is going to get into something we're going to talk a little bit about. I am denying crazy politicians. This seems yeah. good. Uh, so <laughs> I, was, I was waiting if there was more. So we're we just crossed into 2018, right? And we've got a president. Like we had our episode about politics. We're not going to get into too much of it. But so the the crazy president of North Korea tweets that he has a nuclear button on his desk, right? And instead of trying to de-escalate the problem, our president tweets, "I've got a bigger one that actually works." And I'm like, this is like that kid on the playground that's like, well, I'm going to punch you in the face. And then the guy's like, well, I'm going to kick you in the stomach instead of like walking away or like shutting down your Twitter account. Right. So just crazy politicians like we're going to end up in like a nuclear wasteland because of ego. And that's just terrifying. So two things strike me about that, because I did see that on Twitter. And I think just like most of the entire world, I thought this is seriously got to be a joke. First off, who would respond in this with this kind of diplomacy two things one this is basically the equivalent of come at me bro but with nuclear weapons yeah why are we even instigating that i I don't know know. and the second thing is isn't this a bit kind of like to use your metaphor like saying my dad is stronger than your dad and we'll beat him up it's just yeah except it's like my my nuclear warhead will destroy your civilization more than yours will destroy mine right Either way, no matter how you couch it, the thing that makes it so disturbing is there's nuclear weapons involved. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know if Korea actually has nuclear warheads that they can deliver, but that's that's really beyond the point. Right. It's a totally moot point. Maybe they do. I'm with you. Now we are, we're already trying to tempt somebody who threatened us with nuclear weapons basically to be like, yeah, I dare you. Don't dare the crazy person. Right. That seems like poor form. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you denying? That's a really good denial. I was not (laughs) expecting that kind of thing. So my denial stems from the fact that I just want to deny inappropriate use of humidifiers. (laughs) Okay. Only because we just purchased one because it's dry like crazy in our bedroom. Yeah. And I didn't properly do the research to figure out what is supposed to be like the normal humidity level in the air when it's winter. So I just, I was like, let's get this thing going. So I got this like pretty decent, it was cranking out like a lot of moisture. Like I could see the cloud forming in the corner and I was like, yeah, we're going to feel great when we wake up in the morning. It turns out what I did was I just created a whole different ecosystem that was basically a rainforest (laughs) at like 7am. Wake up and you have to like wipe water off your forehead. Oh, I'm telling you, it was thick in here and not only that but basically it all condensed on the windows which like i'm telling you like froze up the windows which i think is dangerous in its own right so i'm just denying i guess my own ignorance when it comes to things like understanding humidity levels like do you know what it's supposed to be in your house no yeah neither do i i think it's supposed to be like 35 to 40 in the winter it seems low but i have no idea oh i would have said like 60 
See, that's why. Yeah. So when I woke up, it was like 75. Oh, man. I'm just picturing. So, you know, the original Jumanji movie, how like they they land on the thing and it like turns the area around him into a jungle. Yeah. I'm picturing your bedroom being like that, where like your bedroom is slowly being enveloped by this like humidity cloud. That's one of the things that didn't make it in the original cut of Jumanji was the humidity. It had that vibe. I'm not going to lie. It had that vibe. It was, I've turned it way down. So hopefully it'll be a lot, a lot less um, humid, yeah, like south of the border in here. <laughs> well, south of the border is actually pretty dry. You have to go like south of that border to get to the humidity. Yeah. Sorry. Way, way south. Yeah. Way, way so, south. All right, affirmations. So, yeah. What do we got for affirmations? I'm affirming short movies. So, um, you know, I, I like a good long epic movie just as much as the next person. But we went and saw the new Jumanji movie over uh, holiday break or non-holiday break, regular ordinary day of the middle of the week <laughs> for no good reason break. And um, it was like an hour and like 20 minutes long or something. I mean, it was probably longer than that, but it wasn't like a two and a half, three hour movie, which is what I'm used to. So we got out of the movie and I was like, man, we have like the whole day in front of us. I'm used to going to movies and it's like a, it's like a whole day commitment. It's like a time warp. Yeah, exactly. You go in at like lunchtime and you come out at dinner time. Yeah. You've got a full beard. Yeah. Children yeah, you have, have to grown. shave in the middle of yeah. the movie. It's embarrassing. I'm with you in that. Uh, are you thinking of any movies in particular that are epic that you prefer that were not epic? Yeah. So uh, my wife is on this kick today. We get done with church. All of the like really hardcore Sabbatarians are going to like hate me for this, but we get done with church. And my wife is like, let's watch Lord of the Rings today. And then I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, we could watch Lord of the Rings. We could watch one of them. She's like, oh, no, no, I mean The Hobbit. I was like, oh, The Hobbit. So she asked me, like, well, which do you like better? And which ones do you like better? Do you like the Lord of the Rings trilogy or the Hobbit trilogy? Okay, for me, there's there's just no competition. It's Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Every day. So my take on this is I think that the Hobbit movies are better made movies. Like they're... They're more well-crafted movies, but the Lord of the Rings is just such a better story. It's like such a more, and it makes sense given how it was written, but it's such a more mature story in For terms sure. of the character development and the, the stakes of what's going on. In The Hobbit, the stakes are really high, but you don't actually know that like at all until he writes another book later and explains what the stakes were in The Hobbit. Right. So it just seems like, oh, there's some dwarves that want to get their treasure back. And that seems like all the stakes are. And it's not until later that you find out that like, oh, the necromancer was, so, spoilers, the necromancer was Sora or Saruman or Sauron. Oh, and they were trying to recruit Smog, So that's why we had to kill Smog. Like all this stuff plays into it, but you don't, you don't read about that or see any of that in the actual movie. Right. So it just feels like a, I mean, it's like a fun adventure, but then it's a fun adventure that's like nine and a half hours long. Yeah, to watch exactly. I can so, read the entire book in less time than it would take me to watch the movies. Yeah, because they took a single book and split it up into three pieces and added a bunch of stuff, of course, to make sure they could get each of those movies out to be that long. Yeah, and a, sh- a relatively short book written for children. Right. So I, yeah. like, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not being facetious when I say I could actually read the entire Hobbit movie in less time than it takes, or read the entire Hobbit the, the book in book. less time than it takes to watch all three movies. Yeah, it's for crazy. sure. F- funny story about the first Hobbit movie, because I haven't even seen the second two. Yeah, well, we went to the first Hobbit movie together. Exactly. And I don't know if you remember this, but I'm sitting there and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking to myself, man, this is poor planning on their part for the time in this movie because it's taking <laughs> them a really long time to get the smog and there's still like yeah. a lot of stuff that has to happen. So then when they get to the to finally the dragon i was like all right here we go it's go time and then it basically ends and i was like wait and, and it was only then that you were like there's two more movies and i was like disgusted that i sat through the first one see you're thinking of the second one i think you have seen the second one you don't know it the first one ends on the hilltop when the eagles come and get them oh then i haven't even seen the first one i don't even the know how second, this happened then the second one ends where they just get to the mountain and and they get introduced to smog and he flies out over uh lake town which is the, the which is the ends. one though that ends with Smog's eye opening? That's the first one. Okay, so that that's the part I saw okay. and I was like, okay, here we go. We've seen the dragon. It's gonna happen, and then it cuts, and yeah. I was like, uh, never again. I'm which doesn't here. make any sense because Smog is still fast asleep in the beginning of the second movie. He doesn't actually wake up until the end of the until the beginning, almost the end of the second movie. Oh, well, apparently he's a light sleeper. He is. Yeah. 
So what are, what are you denying today, or what are <laughs> that, you affirming today? That de-escalated so quickly. Yeah. Well, we'll leave, we'll leave the rest for Nerd Gospel Podcast. They can tell us all about why. That's true. Listen to Jeremy. What the and significance of Nerd Smog gospel. waking up is to the gospel. Yeah. That's your challenge, Jeremy and Heath. Make tell it us happen, why brothers. Smog is related to the gospel. So on kind of like a different vein altogether, having just finished 2017, this week I'm affirming a wonderful companion book especially, or I guess I have to say particularly if your reading plan for the scriptures is the Robert Murray McShay reading plan. For the Love of God by D.A. Carson is just really a wonderful compliment. It kind of walks through some of those scriptures, provides some expository understanding and kind of fleshes them out a little bit more, provides a little commentary. It's great. So For the Love of God, which makes it sound like I'm just making a point, but For the (laughs) Love of God by D.A. Carson is a great little book. It's like 10 bucks on Kindle. So it's totally worth it to have alongside your scripture reading as a supplement. Go check it out. Yeah, I've read he used to publish some of those as like a devotion on his Gospel Coalition page, and I used to love reading those. So I'm doing a different plan this year, so it wouldn't line up. But Yeah, they're really quite good because they're not daily bread cheesy style. They actually kind of force you back into the scriptures. So it's a really wonderful buttress, if you will. That was the only word word that came to my mind. That's a good word. Well, you know, it has but in it. So what are we talking about today besides, I mean, we've already covered such exceptional ground, including Greek yeah. and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Well, we'll do a tiny housekeeping announcement before we get into our topic. So we have said ad nauseum, ad nauseum that uh, we're going to start doing voicemails. And we didn't want to just sort of like randomly tack it onto the show because usually when we have a topic, we find that we are already like feeling like we don't have enough time to touch that on the topic. So rather than shorten uh, the amount of time we have on any particular topic, we're going to say the last episode that we record for each month, which may not be the last episode you listen to in a month, um, is going to be voicemails and emails and listener questions. So um, we're going we're gonna to collect the voicemails and emails, and then we'll put together a show each month if there's enough of them to um, go through those. So if there's not, if we only get like one voicemail in a month, then we may wait until the next month. Um, but we will try, if we're not going to answer your email or voicemail on the air, we'll try to at least send an email to you if we can to give you a sort of an answer for that. Right on. We listen and read everything that's sent in. Yes, and we usually read the voicemail transcripts before we listen to them, and it is the <laughs> highlight of my day when we get a voicemail to try to read Google, try to figure out, especially when someone uses like theological terms. Yes. Google does not know what to do with those, and it's no amazing. idea. Yeah, it's great. So keep those coming, and there'll be episodes in kind of a regular rotation where we're bringing those questions in and playing the voicemails. So thanks for sending them in, and keep doing so. So tonight we are going to talk about a topic that um, I think probably is not unfamiliar to our audience, um, but I I know that I haven't ever given a lot of deep thought to it. Um, So it'll be good to talk about it. We're going to talk about what the seeker-sensitive church is and um, some of our concerns uh, about kind of that movement. So Jesse, um, what's your experience with seeker-sensitive churches? Do you have any? I don't think I have like any direct experience, although where I live, there are several churches, I would say, that kind of embody that mentality, that missiology. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's prevalent. I think it's more prevalent than most people realize. But usually what happens is I'll run into somebody who goes to a different church and I think is a well-intentioned, passionate Christian. But in terms of talking with them, we start to understand that we have very different views of the Lord's Day and what happens at our churches on the Lord's Day. So that's kind of my foray into the kind of practical conversational experience with Seeker Sensitive. How about you? Um, so I went to a church in Minnesota that, um, sort of started out as what I would say is a more biblical model. And since I've left, just listening to some of their sermons seems to have kind of morphed into a seeker sensitive model. Um, and then, you know, I've mentioned before that I was in a really large mega church that had sort of a little bit of everything. And there was definitely seeker sensitive, um, services within that church. So, um, I've got some direct experience, but what I've noticed, you know, we talked about how the word Pharisee is kind of thrown out as just like a way to end the conversation or it's just like an inflammatory term. Right. I found that seeker sensitive sometimes can be that online and in online discussions too, where like a a seeker sensitive church is just any church that is more concerned with the culture than yours is. So like the really hardcore exclusive psalmody people are saying like, well, you know, we don't sing 
we don't sing hymns like the seeker sensitive churches do. And then you have like the more modern evangelical churches are like, well, we don't sing those hymns like the, you know, we're a seeker sensitive church. So we don't sing those hymns and it, it just gets thrown around. And it seems like there's not a lot of good actual definition around what that, that movement actually is. Yeah. You know I agree I mean? with that. It, some of it is relative in a sense. However, to your point, basically if somebody else's church or another church is in a way trying to make itself more relatable to people, that's usually right. seems a lightning rod for the criticism of it. Well, it's just seeker sensitive. Right. So that being said, I'm kind of curious, how would you define it then? So if I were to ask you like, what are the marks or how do I know that this is like a seeker sensitive community? What would you yeah. say? Yeah. So I, um, I tried to do a little bit of research on this ahead of time, which I don't oh, look at you. I'll I research don't usually up. do, but the reason is I don't have a great definition. So I tried to find a good definition online and I asked Google, I said, what is the definition of a seeker sensitive church? And they like Google couldn't find anything. So it's, it's got like articles about like, should a church be seeker sensitive? How the seeker sensitive church is failing straight talk about the seeker church movement. So like, it's all these articles about the seeker sensitive church or the seeker movement. Right. But not a lot of like actual definitions. Um, I did find an article on the Gospel Coalition here. Um, let me pull it up. My computer is loading very slowly. Uh, it's by someone named Paul Rezkala, who I actually don't know who that is, but the article is pretty good. And let me, let me read what he says. He says, let me define what I mean by the seeker-friendly church. When we think of seeker-friendly churches, we imagine skinny jeans, flashy lights, fair trade coffee, and the tendency to prioritize felt need over Christ and his gospel. The idea is that the unbeliever will come to church when we make church less, quote, churchy. So we get rid of the things that make Christianity unsettling and off-putting in order to attract more, quote, seekers. We try right. to be relevant since that's what seekers want. So I think that's a good kind of like broad definition. One of the things that I would add, though, is that this may be a little controversial, but the the seeker movement treats the Sunday morning experience, whatever we want to call that, Lord's Day worship, Sunday worship convention, whatever it gets called, they treat that as though its primary uh, purpose is evangelism. Right. Right. So they're, they're focused on getting non-Christians in the door, presenting the gospel as they understand it, which is a good impulse. Obviously, you want to present the gospel, but they focus on um, Sunday morning being about making more Christians. Um, not necessarily making more disciples, because what we'll see is that making a Christian and making a disciple are separate things for this group of people. So they're focused on making Christians on Sunday morning, and then discipleship happens somewhere else, some other time during the week, usually in a small group or a program of some sort. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think that the felt need piece is kind of the central yeah. point that starts to differentiate and to provide some delineation. So if you were to ask me, for me, it's like twofold, two things I think of. One is that the seeker-sensitive movement deliberately doesn't find a common basis for mission in doctrine or creed. Right. So basically their creed is just Jesus, where there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's, it's ill-defined. The second thing is that movement has an aggressively strong commitment to, to the use of like social sciences, like sociology, psychology, anthropology, right. holding the Bible basically with one hand and social sciences with the other. But all the time they're saying, well, all truth is God's truth. Right. So there's this difference that I think primarily gets manifested on the Sunday morning. And you're right about that. So if you walk into a seeker-sensitive church, you're likely to see a totally different structure in Sunday morning worship. Because more than likely, what's happened in a church like that is everything is determined by the question, how will the unchurch respond if we right. do this or if we do that? So that's yeah. to me like the big difference. There's all these, these kind of outworkings. But it would seem to be that for seeker sensitive churches, and maybe even those that are on that scale, that sliding scale, they've turned their public worship services in the direction of focusing upon the needs of those who attend, rather than on focusing on the need to worship God as he desires and prescribes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think we have to be careful, though, because sometimes people use the sort of the excuse, well, we're not one of those seeker sensitive churches. They use that as an excuse or an excuse not to be sensitive to the culture around them. Right. So um, an example might be a church that insists, absolutely insists that you, um, you only come to church wearing a suit and tie if you're a man and a dress if you're a woman, right? They say, well, this is, 
this is the way it has to be. And if you ask them, they may say like, well, we're not going to, we're not going to sub- submit to the cultural norms around us. So we're going to maintain this. And what, what is frustrating about that is that's just, they're just a different cultural norm from 50 years ago that they're exactly. to instead of a modern one. Right. But in, it's, it's much deeper than just saying like a church that is observant of cultural trends and takes them into account while they plan their worship service. That's not seeker. That's not a seeker sensitive church. So I think all of our churches do this to a greater or lesser degree, right? We, most churches have lights, right? We have heating, we have things that are built in as a result response of things that have changed throughout time. Some of it's cultural some of it is technological, but we've made changes to the way our churches function on a like logistical level on the basis of what's happening around us. That's not the seeker-sensitive movement. So right. I want to be really clear about that. Yeah, there's a difference between trying to understand what is allowed in the cultural context to make sure that we are meeting people in a sense where they're at, so that the, the front porch, if you will, of the church is a place that remains open. That, right. So everything is well-defined in the perimeter and it kind of fades out into the community. But there's a big difference between compromising those certain things within the function of the church so that they go against scripture and therefore fit in more pronouncedly with culture. And where that line is, I don't even know if it's, if it's blurred because I think probably, well, let me say for me, there are certain things that would say once we step over this line, once we really compromise the focus of the Lord's Day worship— that we are moving in a direction that is beyond just acquiescing to culture in a way that's innocuous. Yeah. And I think um, even kind of framing it as we sort of have been as a continuum with kind of like the seeker sensitive movement on one end. And I guess I don't even know what you would call it, the traditional church model on the other end. Even that I think may lead us down the wrong path because what we're really talking about is competing contradictory ecclesiological models. Right, different understandings of what the church is, who comprises the church, and of uh, what the purpose of the church is. So the seeker-sensitive model, in sort of its most extreme instances, so think like Andy Stanley at North Point Church. Right, he is on the far end of what it means to be seeker-sensitive. A lot of seeker-sensitive churches would look at him and go, "Whoa, hold on a second. And he'll say things like. Well, the non-Christian who comes to my church, he lets, I think he lets non-Christians become members of his church, right? And he does that because, well, you know, we're, we're all one group. We're all one community. And so the, the non-Christians that are here are part of our community as well. So they might, they're a part of our church. Well, I guess in an informal sense, we could say that the non-Christian who's been attending and hearing the word preached is participating in, in the visible church in a sense, but not in any sort of formal um, organic sense. They're, they're present in the assembly, but they're not part of the assembly. Where the seeker-sensitive model a lot of times actually includes the non-Christian as not just present in the assembly, but actually constitutive of the assembly itself. Right. Where the traditional model, um, with Presbyterians, we would acknowledge that there are, um, there are probably non-regenerate Christians who are non-regenerate people who are formally uh, united to the church in a formal sense, participating in the administration of the covenant, but not in the substance. And then in Baptist models, we would say that the church, the visible church and the invisible church are distinct, but the church is a regenerate membership as far as we can get, as close as we can get to that. Right. But neither model would say that people who we who are ab- absolutely not Christians, who are not claiming to be Christians in any sense, are a part of the church in a, a formal sense. So there's a there's a real distinction there in addition to thinking about what the purpose of the, the Sunday gathering particularly, but the church as a whole is. Um, I think putting them, picturing it as a, a sort of a continuum of sensitivity to culture, there's probably some fruit in that, but I think that might even start us on the wrong path. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I agree with you that at the heart of this is a misunderstanding of the function and the primary role of the church itself, which I think that function, how you define it, is most pronounced in your Lord's Day expression. So we gain a lot from understanding what a church really stands for, what it believes, how it understands its mission in the world, how it interprets the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, which are two separate things. All that I think you'll glean from a Sunday morning. But I agree that it's almost as if there is a continuum of sorts in that some churches have a more traditional influence in terms of 
things of style, but style right. doesn't necessarily equate to seeker sensitivity. Right. Does that make sense? Like what you wear, if you go to a more traditional church, like you're saying, or even the music, which is like a, of course, a ubiquitous debate, those things aren't by themselves, in my opinion, necessarily seeker sensitive. Yeah. So I guess if we, if we have this continuum that we've been talking about, where you have on one end, sort of the traditional wants to retain the most traditional elements um, of Christian assembly and even things that aren't, aren't elements of that, but are, are just historical precedents. We could maybe call that the conservative end of the continuum. And then there's a more progressive end of the continuum that is more ready to adopt um, newer, uh, newer things, newer styles of dress, newer styles of music, um, newer advances in technology, things like that. That continuum is not the seeker sensitive versus non seeker sensitive right. continuum, but being a seeker sensitive church pushes you towards the progressive end exactly. of that continuum. And being um, what I guess what we'll just call the the historic Christian model, which will tip our cards to what we think about the seeker sensitive <laughs> model, but being part of the historic Christian model is going to push you more towards the conservative end of that continuum. So there's a correlation between the two different ecclesiology models and where you fall in that continuum, but the continuum itself is distinct from the conversation we're having. It's a, and it's a, that'd be a really interesting conversation to have right. about how far, you know, where is the right spot on that continuum? I, I don't have an answer for you, but that'd be an interesting conversation too. Right. Acquiescing to some of the style components embedded in culture does not make you seeker sensitive. However, if you are seeker sensitive, you tend to have already impounded right. all those style choices because yeah. it's going to automatically comport with your model. It's probably a necessary requirement. Right. And I, I think I can say this for both of us, but you let me know if you hate evangelism. We're not saying that <laughs> we're, evangelism isn't important. So put down your phone and stop typing the hate email to us right now. Yeah. We're not saying that at all. What, I, what I'm mainly thinking is that when I see the seeker-sensitive movement, what I'm seeing, I think, are two things. One is this import of humanistic psychology, especially when it comes to felt needs, and especially about feeling good about ourselves, because these gurus have identified that that's a basic felt right. need. So this positive self-image has become necessary for human growth and success, which is crazy. And right. that felt need of, for self-esteem is totally not compatible with biblical concept of right. human sin and depravity. So, so there's that. And then here's this other thing. And I want to see, I wanna, I'm curious if you've ever seen this. I have actually listened to several sermons where this, this uh, philosophical concept has come up and I've, I'm just like astounded that it has a place in a sermon. And that is, I can't, well, I can tell you probably I've heard four or five sermons in my lifetime where Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been present as a central component of the sermon. And in some churches, this is more prevalent than in others. But in the secret sense of churches that I have listened to or either visited, when stuff like this comes up, I'm just beside myself because that, number one, is a humanistic theory. It's right. a hypothesis. You can't prove that, that hierarchy, though it seems to make good cognitive and intuitive sense, but you can't prove it. But it seems to me that the first question of the shorter Westminster Catechism, which was for children, has a better answer for all of life than that right. entire hierarchy. Yeah. It just doesn't have a place. So have you ever seen that kind of thing brought into either worship or preaching? You know, I have in a sense, and in the context it was in, I don't actually think it was a problem. So I have a, a youth pastor who, ironically, I, I I kind of hope he doesn't listen to this, but he is actually the pastor of the church that I was talking about that shifted more towards a seeker sensitive movement. But when, when we were in youth group and I was a leader for youth group, he would, we would always have a reminder to mind Maslow. And what he was saying is like, if, all right, if you've got a, you've got a group of teenagers, right? You've got 15 teenagers in your care and you're trying to lead a Bible study and you're sitting outside and there's mosquitoes everywhere and it's almost lunchtime and there, there's a bear attacking the campers, you can't expect them to pay attention. And his point was, you have to take care of all of these other needs before right. you can expect them to pay attention. And I think in the context he was using it, that makes sense, right? I'm not going to expect a bunch of middle schoolers who are underslept and haven't eaten and are you know outside in the hot and getting attacked by mosquitoes. I'm not going to expect them to pay attention to Bibles. I need to take them somewhere that's cool and safe for mosquito, all that stuff. Right. But I think the seeker-sensitive movement does extend that to not just physical things, right? I think, you know, if your church building is on fire, then maybe stop the sermon and, and get everybody out, right? 
on that level, Maslow's hierarchy of needs probably fits. But they extend it almost to like a spiritual thing. Right, to like self-actualization. You have to take care, right, you have to take care of all of their basic spiritual needs in terms of not even what we would talk about with spiritual needs, like their happiness and their security, their finances. You have to take care of all of that before you can even get to the gospel. Right. And I think that is a major problem. Um, I, I don't run into that in, in a lot of seeker-sensitive things, at least explicitly. I've never heard it stated as such. But when you look at the way that they preach a lot of times, I think that's definitely in the background. Yeah, for sure. Like that's the rubric I, that goes back to, isn't there like an African proverb, empty stomachs have no ears. So something like I get, that, yeah. I get the point that obviously even in the gospels, we see Jesus meeting, especially physical meet need, man, physical meeting, physical felt <laughs> needs. Why was that so hard? I don't know. We need to meet your physical felt needs and be able to talk as a way of kind of this entry point into the gospel. So I get that. And there's good reason to do those things. So I'm not against like social justice that Christians would do in so much as it does lead to the gospel as it is an example and a promulgation of the gospel. But I'm with you where I've seen this applied is basically at the top of the pyramid, not the bottom. So we all get it that if if you can't, if you're not in a safe place, it's very difficult to have any kind of conversation for any particular thing. But it's this idea that at the top is still self-actualization and God can help us be self-actualized and yeah. that he is like the ultimate form of self. Like the only, the only being I know who's actually self-actualized is God himself. And we're <laughs> not going to attain that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's more, and it, for me, it kind of comes, it rubs against the concept of sin. Like you said, with happiness, like maybe there's something that the church can do to can make people happy. But it seems to me like when you become a Christian first, you realize just how very unhappy you actually are, or maybe how very unhappy you should feel and be yeah. because of your sin. So, I looked up this quote from this guy, Dr. Robert Schiller, who is, I don't know if you know him, but he's kind of like a, one of the pioneers and advocate for seeker sensitivity when it's kind of first blossoming. Here's what he says, and this is incredible, but I think this gives us a sense for maybe a better definition for what, how this movement kind of understands itself. Here's what he says. I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people feel aware of their lost and sinful condition. Yeah. That's crazy. That is the gospel. <laughs> like it, yeah. It has to start there. But that's, I think, in terms of the spectrum, how extreme things can become. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I'm like, a, I'm like physically stunned by that quote because it, it's, it's, it's so contrary to to everything that Jesus does in the gospels. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be charitable, but I really wonder if these people who are advocating some of this stuff have actually read the Bible before. Sure. So let, let me just read a little bit of scripture. And this had to come up in this conversation, but Romans three, um, starting in chapter 10. Yes, here um, we go. And Paul is quoting, I think it's Psalm 14 that he's quoting. Yeah. Psalm 14 He's quoting, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what the seeker-sensitive movement is doing is saying, these people, these people whose mouths are full of venom, their tongues are used to deceive, their paths are full of ruin, their way is full of lack of peace, and they're eager to shed blood. Those people, we're going to structure our church in order to make them comfortable. Right. And it's just astounding to me because no one seeks God, right? It's not, you don't even have to, you don't even have to do any real interpretation or exegesis for that. No one seeks God. Paul is being extremely clear. So this idea that like we need to, we need to make our church first attractive so people who aren't Christians will just want to come visit us, right? So this is where you get silly nonsense like Star Wars Sunday. I love Star Wars, but I'm not going to make a church service that is like a mock Star Wars episode. There's right. churches that do stuff like that, um, you know, or like there's one, one version that's called the attractional model, which is kind of Rick Warren's model. And it's like, well, we need to have daycare and we need to have Sunday school. And we need to have... Um, a weight room and a pool and we have to have 
financial aid services and we're going to do college courses and to all these different things because if we can get people in the door to our building and then sort of trick them to coming on Sunday, then we can then we can preach the gospel to them. But maybe we won't even do that. Maybe we'll wait and we'll get them really invested in the community. And then when they're part of a small group, then maybe they'll hear the gospel. Well, maybe not. Let's push it down the road a little bit more until eventually, like, nobody's preaching the gospel to anybody. Right. And that's I'm probably re- because in most of those cases, nobody knows the gospel. Right. There's been so many iterations of this, of they're making disciples, but they're not making Christian disciples who understand the gospel. They're making disciples who know how to bring more people in the building and replicate, but they're replicating something that's not Christian. Right. Man, I'm so glad you brought up Romans 3 because yeah, that passage I've been thinking about or I think about a lot in terms of the seeker-sensitive movement. And what that passage tells me is if we define seeker-sensitive, which presumably we're just talking about spiritually curious people. Right. It could be all walks of life, not necessarily godly. Well, we'll get to that. But they're all kind of an ilk where it's just basically, I'm curious. Right. So here's the funny thing. Here's why I think we can just bear the logic that God has given us as a gift to our reasoning. So let's think about it this way. First, my, here's my conclusion. Seeker-sensitive church, oxymoron, right from the beginning. That, yep. That's what Romans 3 tells us. So if we have no one, not one, who is actually seeking, nobody's seeking for God, then the people that presumably we're trying to seek, if we're able to get them, it turns out that what they were actually after is not God himself anyway. So what we're giving them is this all kind of false gospel, uh, apart right. from regeneration. So appealing to the felt needs of a fallen culture is actually not appealing to the real needs. That's what I feel like is so disastrous about this. If your church is having the conversations of, we don't want to be like that, then you're probably not. So I don't want people to feel like, well, I don't know. We've done certain things. We've had outreaches. Right. That, that's not what we're talking about. Um, because if the gospel is moving forward in its power and all of its purity, then this is not a concern. But the ir- irony is, as soon as we venture out along the pathway of self-knowledge, what we discover is that man is desperately trying to avoid self-knowledge. Right. This is why we don't even like to be alone in our cars without the music on. Because anytime we let our own thoughts take over, we realize how vain and empty, how much at fault we are, how complacent and trivial and indifferent we are as people. So there is great irony in saying we're going to use the Bible because we believe this supports a seeker-sensitive model, even though the Bible says no one is a seeker of God. Right. It's wild. Yeah. It's weird circular logic. Yeah. And and I think, you know, this this gets into something that I think we probably will come back to on a, a different episode. But um, Two Thieves podcast actually came in on their first episode of the year strong talking about the law gospel distinction. Right. So if you confuse the law and the gospel or if you preach the law without the gospel, you get legalism. If you preach the gospel without the law, you have some sort of nonsense because what are people being saved from if not their sins? Right. And what what the seeker-sensitive movement tries to do is it eliminates things that make people uncomfortable, namely the law. So that that quote that Schuller had is basically like, don't preach the law. Preaching exactly. the law is the worst thing that's ever happened to the church. Well, I think that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John and everyone else who wrote the New Testament would beg to differ because they include the law in their writing of the scriptures. And so what happens is in, in proper law gospel preaching, people come into being preached to in all sorts of different circumstances, but none of them come in seeking God because it's the preaching of the word that causes people to be regenerated right. and to have faith. It's not that they had some sort of nascent form of faith that causes them to seek God and then the the gospel nurtures that. That's kind of the seeker model. It's that they came in as enemies of God and God killed them with the law. And then he chooses to bring some back to new life. And those people that he brings back to new life now are seekers of God because they've been regenerated and transformed into, and they're increasingly being reformed into the image of Christ. Right on. But this idea that there's going to be these people in your service um, that, or these people that you interact with that are somehow like they're basically ready to hear the gospel. Well, no, nobody is ready to hear the gospel until you've been put to death. That has to come first. If a seed does not die and fall to the ground, it cannot sprout into new life. Right. And now I know like horticulturally seeds don't die when they fall. I get that. But the, the language the scripture is using there is making a point that you can't expect something to just come out of nothing. And the seeker movement is is 
tilling this soil that is just foul, fallow soil. It, there's nothing there to grow. There's no seed in the soil. And so what they're doing is they're trying to coax the soil to produce something. And what it ends up producing is just more dead stuff. Right. Yeah. I, get I went that way the, down that, the rabbit hole of that. No, that was, that was good, especially your <laughs> agricultural stuff is on, on point. <laughs> I, I get that this is going to be a point of debate for some because they're going to they're gonna hear that and say, I understand that faith comes through hearing. So if I can't get a person's butt in a pew on Sunday morning, how are they going to hear? But I think that's an adventure missing the point because what we're talking right. about is that the church honor how God desires to be worshiped, especially on the Lord's day. Nobody's saying that you shouldn't be concerned about evangelistic presentation, especially in relationship, in small group, whatever. But it's this focus on making Sunday morning palatable for the average person. It's What's right. so funny is it's like we want the power of God, but we're going to create a vacuum of that power on Sunday morning. Right. And so, and then we couple that with this idea that people are just kind of walking in off the street, like you said, because they have some kind of natural predisposition to believe, to have faith. And we know that that's just certainly not true. So it's just, it's almost like these weird, all these ships are passing each other in the night. It's all right. this weirdness. And so you end up with sometimes large churches. And I know that sometimes people look at these large churches and they get very frustrated because they seem to be doing everything right. They have, at least on the outside, vibrant communities, lots of membership, lots of money. But the irony is to stand in awe of the numbers of people who flock to seeker sense of congregations is like standing in awe of the crowds who come to casinos or buy lottery tickets because money yeah. is a felt need too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we have to be careful too, because there are definitely Christians inside of seeker sensitive churches. For sure. Um, and I would I would venture to say most of the leadership of most seeker sensitive churches are are regenerate Christians. They're just very I think they're just very misguided on what the purpose of the church is. So you know that gets to it is that the Sunday morning Lord's Day service. The reason it's called a service is because we are coming to serve God. We are coming as ministers. And we're ministering to God. I know that's right. a weird way to say that, but it's the same as like the priests who would come to the temple and minister to God. Priests and believers. Right. So we come to the, the Lord's Day service to bring God our offering of praise, to become living sacrifices and voluntarily place ourselves on the altar because he's called us to do that. That is not something that is going to look appealing to a person who is not regenerate. Right. That doesn't mean that that can't be used by God. And I would say ordinarily is used by God to bring about conversion, right? It's it's usually the case, or at least it used to be. It may not be anymore, but it usually is the case that a person who is being witnessed to by Christians, their their first real experience of being converted usually happens after coming to church. Um, I don't know many people who became Christians entirely absent from some sort of church attendance. Right. It's possible. I, um, I think it's probably happening more and more now because there's just a vacuum in the church. There's just, there's just gaps where there isn't good teaching in the church. So people who are being called by the Holy Spirit go to a church and they don't get the gospel. So then the right. Holy Spirit gives it to them in a different context. But um, this, this is probably the most controversial thing I've ever said on this podcast. Oh, I, oh this is going to be good. The Great Commission is not about evangelism. Okay. I don't know if you agree with me. You look a little stunned. Okay. But well, the, I had to think about that, but I didn't expect the, this was about to, you were about to drop that bomb. Right. The Great Commission is not about evangelism, right? People read the Great Commission and they think, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing right. them in the name of the uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, what about that sounds like evangelism, except go, go and make, go and make. But you don't baptize people before they're Christians, right? And I, I'm the Presbyterian saying that, right? But you don't you don't <laughs> baptize people before they're Christians. It must be true. You you don't teach them before they're Christians. Baptizing and teaching happens in the church, right? Not out in the world. It's right. Yet yeah, that's a church action. And so when people think that the Great Commission is all about evangelism, they miss the point entirely. That the ordinary function of the church on Sunday morning, particularly is to make disciples. And disciples are people who are Christians. Christians are disciples. Disciples are Christians. It's the same thing with a different emphasis. Right. When we separate the making Christians from making disciples, 
That's where we run into trouble. But the, the issue with making the Great Commission about evangelism is it totally turns aside the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to glorify God, and it's the place that we enjoy him on this side of eternity, right? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. We enjoy God by fellowship with him in the context of the communion of saints, and that happens in, on earth in the Lord's Day gathered worship. Evangelism is totally necessary. It's a prerequisite to the Great Commission. We can't right. fulfill the Great Commission without doing evangelism. But the Great Commission itself is about what happens in the church. You make disciples by baptizing and teaching, not by having daycare that single mothers come to to feel really great about your organization, and then you kind of like trick them into becoming Christians. Right. That's kind of the secret model. I mean, that sounds like an exaggeration. No, but I've seen that in place. It's it, you know, or like divorce care. We went to a church that had a divorce care group. You know what? That's fine. Like if the church wants to offer some sort of opportunity for people to come and, and sort of have like free counseling, fine. That's great. If you've got someone capable of doing it, that's great. But when you start to substitute those things instead of genuine evangelism, that's that's a recipe for disaster. Right. Exactly. Okay. So first off, I can get down with what you're saying. For a second, you were uh, you were shocking me into believe that you're going to say something like really wild. <laughs> But I understand what you mean, because the emphasis in the commission is the making of disciples. Right. And that does happen only in a particular context. I agree as well that basically evangelism is a necessary requirement to make disciples, but you want to be careful not to make that the dog rather than the tail, so to speak. Right. Yep. So, exactly. so I'm down with that. And, and so here's maybe a helpful distinction then, at least in my mind, hearing you say that, is the church the church that is united to Christ, that has strong fidelity to his scripture, and that seeks to serve and worship him appropriately as he requires, is one that is making disciples. Right. A seeker-sensitive model is making consumers, in my opinion. Yes. So it's capitulating to this consumerism. It's endorsing an unhealthy individualism, treating church growth as the primary activity of the Lord's Day and the congregational worship service as this virtual business undertaking that's aimed at getting consumers to buy the product, which right. is becoming a Christian. So yeah. th that for me is, is a big dis distinction. And I think there are places that make the Great Commission out to be, we just need to go and find outreach ministries that will get people in the door and then not grow them into disciples. Not, they're not purposely saying we're not going to grow them into disciples. But what happens is there's a lack of translating or synergizing from the here's evangelism to here's discipleship and how do we get from point A to point B? I mean, that's hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I recognize that, but the church is the model in which we do that. Right. And maybe to kind of sort of wind things down is, you know, if you're someone who's a part of one of these seeker sensitive churches and you're ready to just smash your phone, don't do that. Uh, cause that's expensive and it's not going to solve anything, but more so than that, <laughs> you need to recognize that the, the, Seeker movement itself has acknowledged that it doesn't work. Right. right. So one of the biggest sort of forces in the seeker movement was Willow Creek Church. Um, you know, church growth movement, seeker church movement, they're kind of intertwined. And Willow Creek was this huge church that had all of these seminars and they published books about programming and all of this different stuff that they offered. And they did this long-term study. And what they found is that the people in their church did not report any sort of spiritual growth as a result of um, the programs. So their model was get people in the door on Sunday, get them connected with a program or a small group, and then the real growth happens in the context of the program or the small group. And what they found is that that, that real growth never happened. And so they're acknowledging that that method doesn't work. Their solution is to now offer more education so people can be what they call self-feeders. So they're still not giving anybody meat on Sunday morning. They're still not feeding the flock. Right. Um, but they're acknowledging that their initial model was not doing any good. So I think, you know, the seeker movement seems to be kind of sort of petering out a little bit. Um, you don't see it as much. It used to be a really hot topic, um, but it's still around. It's still out there. And I think that yes. people need to understand it, it's it's one of those errors that comes from the best intentions usually. Yes, that's true. Best, best intentions plus some uh, misunderstandings theologically usually ends up with something really bad. That's, that's true. That's the case we have here. We have people who want to see the church grow. They want to see people come into the church and they want to see people know Jesus. But the Jesus that they're presenting and the way to get that Jesus 
is not what the Bible presents. And so right. they're producing something, but it's not it's not real spiritual growth. I'm glad that you said that because I don't want anybody to get the impression that we're saying they're entirely wrong-headed, at least from the vantage point, vantage point of where they start. Right. It is out of a legitimate concern, some, sometimes a, a weeping, a breaking for those who are lost. The, the question I guess we have to ask is how do we best minister to the loss? And I think it sounds like what we're saying is this is not the right way to do it. Uh, and it, that may even seem counterintuitive to somebody who's trying to lead a church into being more embracing of their culture in a way that would make them more, not relevant, but more approachable. And so the whole approach with the seeker-sensitive model just lacks hermeneutical precision because this approach works with like anything. It doesn't just work with like evangelism. Like it would work with like ping pong or right. in the sense that you convert anybody to anything if you say that you're able to meet the felt needs. But I think that the question we should ask in reverse, as we kind of wind this down, like you said, is on the, the mm. other side, why is God-centered, scripture-directed worship more quote-unquote, meaningful and successful. And to me, the reason is because of its ability to sweep aside superficial felt needs and to penetrate deep-seated spiritual needs. I mean, biblical preaching is God-centered, sin-exposing, self-convicting, and life-challenging. The direct opposite of today's light, informal sermons that Christianize self-help and entertain better than they convict. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I couldn't say it better myself. So I'm, I'm not going to try. Oh, okay. Just leave it there. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was still like a preface to, I'm just going to round this out for us though. But if somebody else was tempted to smash their phone as they heard this, but instead saved it based on your great reasoning and strong logic <laughs> and wanted to use that phone to contact us at the Reform Brotherhood, how could they do that, Tony? 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Yeah, so keep in mind, we're Bros. collecting all those voicemails up. We're going to have like a cornucopia of voicemails um, because we're thankful for them. And those are going to be <laughs> talked about in our kind of regular monthly edition of questions. Yes. So get those calls in. Um, we did have someone who called about some Christian techno, which was exciting. Yes. Was um, really we didn't great. get any submissions for our John MacArthur techno sermon jam. So that's still out there. Um, <laughs> he yeah. just needs to be auto-tuned so bad. I wish he I does. had the skill set to make that happen. Uh, we, I'm sure we could probably download an auto-tune app of some sort. I, know, we gotta, I just want to hear him say strange fire auto-tuned. Oh, that, we should talk about strange fire sometime. <laughs> Another time. Another time. Well, Jesse, I think that just about does it. All right. So well, you know how we do, Tony. Until we next do. time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Bye.